Welcome to Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. Every year, about 6,000 patients who are waiting to receive an organ for transplant will die. And this doesn't include those who need a transplant, but don't even make the list. My name is Carrie Gossens. I'm 58 years old. I was diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease when I was 21. I graduated from college. I mean, healthy 21-year-old. So I went from healthy and fine to in the hospital the next day being told I shouldn't have children because it's a genetic disease, that I probably would need a transplant someday, and that I might be on dialysis. For decades, Carrie Gossens has gone through ordeal after ordeal in order to stay alive. Her best friend even donated a kidney to her. But after 10 years, that kidney began to fail, and Gossens is now on dialysis. So let me say first, dialysis blows. Dialysis sucks. <laughs> I'm a full-time dialysis patient. And I'm on the easiest kind of dialysis. Like people who are, go to the dialysis center end up much sicker, much weaker, much more tired. And I feel like it's all I do. Last year, Gossens finally got on the wait list for another transplant. I was sick as a dog for two years before I qualified for the list. You have to have less than 15% kidney function before you can even get on the list. And when I qualified for the list, I was told that the waiting is three to five years. Sick as a dog means that I can walk maybe from here to my car, which is a quarter of a block. And I'm so breathless, I have to stop and sit down in my car before I can drive. Sick as a dog means some days I don't get out of bed because I'm so nauseous. Sick as a dog means that I can be performing the regular functions of my day and sit down and fall asleep for six hours. It feels like an impossible system. And I think people who get through it well have won the lottery. And it feels like the odds are about like that. But so many people die on the wait list. So many people get turned down for transplant just because they have some other disease process. They've had cancer because they're too old. So we have to do something else. Doctors say that using animal organs through xenotransplantation is our best hope to save these patients and that we are ready for human trials. But recent deaths of two patients who received pig hearts are raising more questions. My name is David Dwayne Bennett Jr. My father was the first pig heart transplant recipient. My father, after receiving the, the pig heart, lived for 60 days in 2022. And his name is David Dwayne Bennett Sr. My dad made probably the most courageous decision he's ever made in his entire life. He was either going to die or he was going to get a pig heart. And a pig heart had never been tried before in a human. But the surgeon was optimistic that this would give my dad more time with us, if nothing else. It was 
a time that I was able to get closer to my dad and find a, a, a greater love for what he was willing to do, not just for himself, but so many others. This is Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gottbaum. I'm joined by Dr. Mohammed Mohiadeen. He's a professor of surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, where the first pig heart transplants were performed. And also Dr. Robert Montgomery. He's director of NYU Langone Transplant Institute. So Dr. Mohiadeen, I'd like to start with you. You and your team have performed two pig heart transplants so far. One patient lived for about two months and the other less than six weeks. So why did they die? The patients that we transplanted were not qualified for either the human heart or the mechanical devices. And they had no other option and they were close to their death. So when we offered the option of xenotransplant, which was still experimental, they opted for that transplant. In both cases, the patients were very sick. The first patient was already in the hospital for 60 days on artificial support, and the other patient had a cardiac arrest the night before the transplant. And both these patients came to us at a stage where they were not tolerating our current immunosuppression. Can you talk to me specifically about what happened after the transplants? So we are seeing... Uh, evidence of antibody-mediated rejection. We don't know whether these antibodies were produced by the patient or they were given to the patient in form of IVIG or the various blood products that we have given. And in both the cases, we found that the heart endothelial cells that lines the blood vessels were the culprit. They got damaged, leading to fluid going into the heart cells and causing the heart to swell up and dysfunction. In the first case, we discovered that was a latent virus that came with the pig heart. It may have caused some damage to the heart, but we are not sure. And to avoid the virus, during the second case, we made sure we developed serological assays and also PCR-based assays to see that there are no viruses carried over from the pig heart. But uh, after doing the second case, we are thinking that antibody-mediated rejection, the antibodies in both cases, were the major culprit. So it's a tricky balance, especially with these very sick patients. And Dr. Montgomery, I'd like to turn to you. You have done major work with pig kidneys. You yourself have received a heart transplant. Why have you turned your focus to xenotransplantation? Well, I think, you know, as a result of my own experience of developing heart failure, being very sick, having seven cardiac arrests, which I survived just by luck, basically, it became very clear to me that you have to get so sick in order to even get on the transplant list. Once you're on the transplant list, only a third of the patients ever make it across the finish line. So two-thirds of the patients either become too ill to benefit from a transplant or die on the list. So you have this huge amount of death that's occurring 
for every transplant that happens. And that's because of the fact that we don't have enough organs. So it's really the organ shortage that became so clear to me from my own personal experience. And I don't think there's anything that we can do with our current paradigm where somebody has to die for somebody else to live to really satisfy that shortage. And so it became very clear that we had to turn to an alternative source of organs. And xenotransplantation is the most promising at this point. So Dr. Montgomery, you've been transplanting pig kidneys into patients who are brain dead. How did this come about? So we've taken a somewhat different approach to trying to get xenotransplantation into the clinic. Rather than doing an extensive amount of non-human primate work, we and and others too have identified another model where you have an individual who had wanted to donate their organs, but for whatever reason, their organs weren't suitable for donation. And so we approached their families and presented them with another pathway to donation. So rather than donating their organs, they donated their whole body for the purpose of testing pig organs. And so that's what we've been working on for the past six years. And you've had some major successes. Tell us about those. Sure. So in 2021, we did two gene-edited pig kidney transplants into decedents. So these are people who were declared brain dead. And we studied them for three days. So we transplanted these organs into them. And they functioned well and didn't show any evidence of rejection. And then in 2022, we did two hearts. And we studied them for three days as well. They both functioned well initially. One of the hearts was small for the recipient. And that individual did have some problems into the third day when the heart output just wasn't enough to perfuse the uh, organs well. But the second one worked really well. But I think the most significant of the five that we've done was the most recent And we got permission to study a kidney, a gene-edited kidney from a pig in a decedent for two months. And during the first month, that decedent really showed no evidence of rejection. The kidney functioned, you know, perfectly. And then in the second month, there was a antibody-mediated rejection And we were able to successfully treat it. And I think that's probably the first example of that happening, you know, in xenotransplantation. Okay, but there are researchers who say working with brain dead patients is not a good model. And that also the chances of rejection accelerates the longer the transplanted organ is in the body. So is what you're seeing now really a substantial step forward? While this model may not be the best way to look at long-term survival, we're able to get a lot of information because we can frequently sample the blood and the organ itself, the pig organ, without any concerns about you know, putting a living human at risk. So we get a tremendous amount of data and can really begin to understand the biology. Whereas these first two living humans that have received pig hearts, we still don't really, as you heard, really understand what happened to them and why they died. 
And that's because they were trying to do everything they possibly could to have that person survive. And so, you know, they weren't doing frequent biopsies and they weren't able to draw the amount of blood and fluids from these individuals. So we think the decedent model will de-risk future living human trials because we can study these decedents much more intensively. People in your field are saying we want to do human trials. Dr. Mohiadeen, it sounds like there's still quite a bit of work to be done with rejection of the animal organs. One thing that we have discovered, like in both of our patients, there were some amount of antibodies remaining, right? These patients were screened for some of the anti-pig antibodies. However, they were still remaining. So one way to screen our patients will be to see if the patients have the minimal amount of these antibodies. Do we need to completely remove these antibodies before we transplant? That's one question. And later on, you know, do we need to continuously suppress these antibodies throughout the life of that patient? Another factor worth discussing is the health of these transplant patients. Both your patients were very sick. So can you talk to us about what you were up against and what kinds of patients would you like for clinical trials? So if we, if we can get enough confidence in our patient population and get these patients at the earlier stages of their heart dysfunction and they still for some reason are not eligible for human heart transplants, or the mechanical devices. And if we get such patients where none of the other organs are affected and their immunity is intact, those will be the ideal patients. So our first patient who was admitted in the hospital for 60 days before transplants, and out of those 60 days, he was on the artificial support for 45 days. He has not gotten out of the bed, has lost an enormous amount of weight, and his kidneys were not functioning well at that time. Similarly, our second patient also had lost a lot of weight, and at the time of admission, his kidneys were also not functioning. So these patients had multiple organ dysfunction, and after transplant, we had to put them on dialysis to keep the kidney functions also going. And uh, if these patients had not gone through all these other organ dysfunction, the outcome may have been a little different. You know, these patients also understood what they are getting into. They themselves said that, you know, we know that you cannot guarantee a single day of uh, extension to our life. However, you know, we want you to learn from it. And that was the main goal for our group to see what is the difference between our learning from baboon transplants versus human transplants. So there's a continuous learning process, and we may need to do a few more until we have a perfect regimen established for the xenotransplantation. The best way to do it is through clinical trial, and not only at one institution, at multiple institutions. So a multi-center clinical trial would be the best thing to move forward. So Dr. Montgomery, how does Dr. Mohiadeen's recent experience with transplanting pig hearts into human patients affect your work, if at all? I think we've all been influenced by what's happened, you know, in the two heart patients. So I think what we are thinking about on the kidney side is that we've had one really successful brain dead individual that we 
studied a pig kidney for two months, I think we would like to see those good results replicated a, a couple more times. But, you know, for a kidney patient, if they reject the pig kidney, it doesn't mean that they're going to die. So that's something that's a little bit different about the kidney because we have a replacement for a kidney, which is dialysis. So the consequences aren't quite as dire as they are in hearts. Uh, I, I believe that all the avenues should be explored simultaneously. There are several things that we can still learn in a non-human primates, including all these new pathways that we are using in the decedent model, we can learn a lot about the human response. In the meantime, we can learn even more by avoiding everything that we have done that has worked against us. And if we have a, a better immunocompetent human recipient, we may simultaneously learn a lot. So I, I totally agree with Mohammed on this, that these aren't mutually exclusive ways of approaching and, and trying to get the answers that we need. Because we're not going to go into the clinic necessarily with the optimized, you know, immunosuppression and gene edits. That's going to evolve over time. Our plan is to move into clinical trials together using all of the data we have, you know, accumulated from these two models to present to the FDA. And, you know, if they believe that it's safe, and we've shown efficacy, they'll give us a green light to do the initial clinical trial. Also, we are proceeding with uh, what FDA demanded uh, from us to have uh, these non-human primate studies that we are currently performing. And there are several centers who are, who are proceeding with that, mostly in kidneys, but we are doing that in heart also. It's been a challenge to get approval for clinical trials for xenotransplantation. Why do you think we're ready for prime time on these trials? Xenotransplantation right now is supported by 30 years of research. If you look at what's happening, you know, in the field of cancer, there are drugs that have just been synthesized in the past year that are being tried in clinical trials because they might give somebody an extra month of life. And so it's kind of really hard to believe that so much money is being spent and, and risks being taken in patients with cancer. And that we, you know, us patients in transplantation are not given the same kind of consideration when it comes to clinical trials. We're not considering all the people who are dying right now because we don't have another organ source. So we're very focused on acts of commission, you know, like doing something with a patient and then seeing what the outcome is. But we're not really thinking much about the fact that by moving slowly, many more people will die. If I can add. So you, you can tell, you know, what those 60 days meant for Mr. Bennett. And you can talk to the family of uh, Mr. Fawcett and you will find out that what those 40 days meant for them. So even though it looks like a short period of time, it meant a lot for that family and for the patient. And we can make that small progress. I mean, if we keep 
doing these kind of procedures in these patients and even slowly progress from months to years, there is a definite benefit. Like Bob said, you know, there are many patients while we are waiting for a clinical trial will die. There's a patient dying every 80 minutes waiting for the transplant. So what about those patients? Those patients don't have time for us to wait till the clinical trial is approved and we have uh, this procedure in place. They are offering themselves. I mean, uh, we receive uh, emails and phone calls on a daily basis from such patients that, uh, you know, can you help us now? That is the urgency. We're not, as a society, feeling the urgency of all these deaths that are occurring. Let me just give you an example. Every year in the United States, a million people are diagnosed with heart failure. The mortality rate from heart failure in five years is 50%. You know how many heart transplants we did last year? Less than 4,000. So just think about that. You know, how many people are dying because there aren't enough hearts to save their lives? You know, we are delaying this process unnecessarily in my mind. You know, of course, we've learned in allotransplantation to deal with infections. The biggest fear, you know, regulatory agencies have is for zoonotic diseases. But, you know, uh, there are antiviral drugs that we can deal with uh, if that happens. Both of our patients, we have not seen, you know, the patient being infected by the disease. Yes, in one case, we saw some viral proliferation, which may have affected the donor heart, which was pig. But the patient in both cases were not infected. Look, you know, we have to be cautious. And this is the balance that you have to strike. We have to move forward cautiously. And what I would like to see is a lot more investment, a a lot more of a sense of urgency in this field to move it forward and to align the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, and pharma and trying to solve this problem and do it in a much more rapid way because many, many lives are at stake right now. Thank you both so very much. And thank you, Rachel. It's, it's been a pleasure. Same here, Rachel. Thank you for asking this important question. Dr. Mohammed Mohiuddin is a professor of surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And Dr. Robert Montgomery is director of NYU Langone Transplant Institute. We had help from Dr. Winifred Williams and our managing editor, Deborah Molina. Our engineer is Mike Toda. Next time, end-of-life care in the United States. Why is there still a disconnect between doctors and their patients? How do we help that neurologist understand what he or she is seeing and be present with patients and not to think that they messed up if the patient says, I think you're wrong. I don't think I'm going to die from this ALS. Like, that's normal. That's next time on Intention to Treat from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Rachel Gotham.